Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. Our text will be finishing up this chapter, verses 35 to 41. This has been an amazing chapter thus far. Been an amazing account. Learning about uh, the, the Lord working in the heart of this man to grow his faith in such short time. Giving him such boldness to stand before those that are only trying to insult him and to discredit Christ who had healed him. He has been through quite an ordeal. He has been pretty well left to himself. To fend for himself, his parents would not really stand up for him. His neighbors weren't. We remember that after he was healed by Jesus, that his neighbors had brought him to the Pharisees to be examined by them. What do we do with this man? For them, it was a violation of the Sabbath because the Lord had, had healed him on the Sabbath. We remember some of the things of, of their ideas and their philosophies, their their views would not permit someone to be healed on the Sabbath if it could wait till the next day. And that really went across the board to anything. If you were helping someone, uh, assisting them back to health, if you were caring for them, if it was a matter of it can wait, then you waited. You didn't do those things on the Sabbath. You didn't ned any dough on the Sabbath. And so the fact that Jesus spits on the ground and he makes some mud, perhaps they considered that as, as netting or a form of it. There was a number of things there that in their minds, Jesus had violated. They're not interested in the miracle. They're not interested in the fact of it being a genuine, genuine miracle. They're only interested in trying to discredit Jesus. Because of the hardness of their hearts, they refuse to believe his claims to deity, his claim to be the son of man, the son of God. They don't want to have any part of this. And so all they attempt to do is to discredit him, discredit the miracle, examine the man again, hoping to find perhaps some kind of difference in his story that they could discredit the man's story and thereby discredit Christ. But nothing like that happened. After seeing that they were getting nowhere with the, the healed man, after seeing the boldness that he was proclaiming about Christ, the only thing that they then could do was to excommunicate him, kick him out of the synagogue, socially ostracize this man because he dared to confess that Jesus was a prophet, that Jesus was godly, that Jesus was sent from God. You see this great progression of this man throughout this whole ordeal of his growing faith. And then in our text today, as this man has been put out, we, we read of this account of Jesus seeking out this man, which really brings to mind so many different things. Jesus had said of, him, uh, had said of his, his mission in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The old hymn that I'm sure many of us are familiar with said, He sought me and he bought me. And this text really shows that our Lord Jesus is not just sitting idly by waiting for people to come to him. Waiting for people to supposedly find him. You know that phrase that people say so. It's so commonplace. That I found God. 
I found Christ as if he were lost, as if he needed you to find him. The fact of the matter is, is you and I were lost. He always knew where to find us. And it was he himself that came seeking for us. He doesn't just go sit in the palace, if you will, hand out a map and say, come find me. Because natural man doesn't seek after God. And the scripture makes that very clear in Romans chapter 3. There are none who seek after God, not even one. Why can't they seek him? Why can't unbelievers seek the true God? It's because they are spiritually blind. That's what the scriptures declare for us. They are spiritually blind and they are walking in darkness. They have no direction. They have no understanding. That was, that was our condition. The Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 17, he says this. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. They're walking in darkness. They have no understanding. They have no direction. They don't know where they're going. They wouldn't know how to find God in that, and using that kind of analogy. The scripture tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've went off the path. We're lost. But in the grace of God, the Lord Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He has come as the great seeker of our salvation. It is he, the son of God, who seeks us. Who finds us and to bring and he brings us to himself that we may see all his glory and his majesty and to know God truly through him. You see here in this passage just how precious in the sight of God are those that are the called of God. He actively sought you and gave you eyes to see him. And the more that you walk with him the more fully you may know him indeed. This was the, this was the situation with this, with this healed man. His faith kept growing throughout this whole ordeal. And he, even though he was excommunicated, it was a small price to pay in order to know Christ and to know God through him. Jesus had become his greatest treasure. And he had no hesitation whatsoever of publicly acknowledging him, publicly confessing him. He was the object of his faith. Christ Jesus, this, this amazing miracle, now understand this. Our Lord Jesus has opened the eyes of this man physically. He did this, allowing him to see physically. But he also did this spiritually, that Lord, the Lord had performed this great miracle, but it also performed a great miracle in the man. And a giving him spiritual insight, giving him eyes to see. And this very miracle 
that Christ has performed with this man is the very same miracle that is performed in you. You were blind spiritually. You had no understanding of God. You weren't seeking after God. He sought you. And He gave you sight. He gave you spiritual sight to see and to know fully the great truths that are found in Christ Jesus. He did this. That you may know Him. And knowing our great King and our great Savior, our pursuit of Him should be with all of our might. To seek after that which laid hold of us. As the Apostle Paul says, I pray that as we work our way through here that we would that we would be roused out of our slumber, if you will, out of our complacency, out of our self-reliance, because as we find here, complacency, self-reliance, all of that, will, willful ignorance is all characteristics of the enemies of our Lord. I pray that our hearts would long to worship at the feet of Jesus to exalt his name as this man. Let's look at this passage together. In John chapter 9, our text, verses 35 to 41. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of the living God. And let's, let us hear the words of the living God. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we give you the praise, the honor, and the glory for all that you are. Thank you for this portion of your word which reveals to us even more of the majesty of our Lord Jesus and the grace of God that is found in him. Oh, Father, I pray that you would illumine this, this text in our hearts, that we would adhere to it, that we would put it into practice by the Spirit of God whom you've granted to us, that we would long for Christ even more so, long to worship at his feet, long to know him even more than what we can currently do. Father, let us never be let us never be okay with the simple knowledge that we have now, but to pursue even more in Christ Jesus. What a joy it is to know you and to learn of you. Father, help us to see that this day. Bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I 
So the healed man has been put out of the synagogue. Now again, now we remember that the religious life of Israel is so intertwined with every other aspect of life in Israel that to be excommunicated from the synagogue was to be socially ostracized. This was a place of worship. This was a place that they would come to hear the word of God, the word of God preached and expounded. This man is no longer welcome there. And yet he, he ends up getting a, an even greater gift, an even greater opportunity to worship the one true God. Jesus had heard, as the text tells us, that they had put him out and finding him. He said, do you believe in the son of man? Now, some of the first things that just really pop out here is not only did Jesus, of course, hear of what happened to this man. He knew the whole ordeal. He knew exactly what was happening. But Jesus sought him out. You remember that in John chapter 4, verse 23, the scripture told us, But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And here you have that being played out, if you will, where you have the Lord Jesus, who is God in the flesh. He's the eternal God, cloaked in human flesh, who is seeking out one that is his. Specifically, this healed man, of course, that he had performed this healing to. He seeks him out. This man wouldn't know where to find him. He doesn't even know uh, truly who he is. Remember, he started out by saying, the man, Christ, the man Jesus is the one who healed me. Then as this whole thing began to unfold, he began to confess him then as a prophet, then as one sent from God, then as the one who is godly. It is more being revealed to this man. And Jesus seeks him out that he may truly believe upon him with true saving faith. Because man's attempts to find God only leads to idolatry, leads to heresy. It is so vital that we understand this. It is God that seeks you out, not you to God. Again, the scripture tells us in the very passage that we just read in John 4. It is God who is the seeker in salvation. Not the people. The people don't seek after God. That's what the Apostle Paul says, right? Romans 3. None who seek after God. It is God who has sought you. Just as Jesus has sought out this man whom he had healed. This man who has this, this budding faith. This growing faith. Jesus seeks him out and finds him. That he may observe the true object of his faith. Which is him. Man doesn't know where he's going. He's spiritually blind. It takes the word. It takes the, the Lord himself. In order to reveal God truly to another. In Matthew chapter 11. This is words of Jesus, of course. We'll jump in verse 25 there. Now listen to this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this 
for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Did you catch that last part? No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This word, reveal, is apocalypto. A word, of course, that should be very familiar to us. Comes over in English as apocalypse. It's the very name of the last book of the Bible. The book of Revelation. The apocalypse of John. The unveiling. That's, that's the same word that's being used here. It means to reveal him. It means to, to take off the cover. To uncover. To lay open what has been veiled. To lay bare. It is Jesus who says, No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son wishes to unveil himself to. Otherwise, man in his natural state cannot find God. As we've talked about, that's one of the great problems with the seeker-sensitive church, is that they, they have it backwards. All these people are not out here seeking after God, and we have to somehow figure out how to lure them into the church that they can know God. As we've talked about before, one of the medieval theologians, Thomas Aquinas, when he was asked that question, why does it seem like all these people are seeking after God? And as R.C. Sproul expounds, what Aquinas had said was, it's not that these people are out here seeking after God and can't find him. It's that they're seeking only the benefits that God can give. They want peace in their life. They want joy in their life. They want happiness in their life. They want all the benefits that only God can give without having him. That is the condition of the unregenerate lost. Because they don't want God. They don't seek after God. They only want the benefits of God. But you cannot have the benefits of God without having Him. So it is not that people are out here seeking. Seeking the true God. As if, once again, that He's lost. He sought after you. You recognize that, dear friends. It wasn't because you were so wise or you were so intelligent that when you heard the call of the gospel, the call to believe upon Christ, that, that you were just so smart that you decided to choose rightly. No. That's not how it is. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man is dead in his trespasses and sin. The natural man cannot even subject himself to the law of God. He's not even able to do so, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. When the call of the gospel came to you, it was only by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God who took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh and granted you faith to believe and to call upon him is why you came to Christ. He sought after you specifically and granted you the ability to come. Otherwise, you would have never come. Because where we are fallen, our, our mind is fallen, our heart, emotions are fallen, our will is fallen, 
We're affected to the very core because of the fall of man. It's all inclined to wickedness. It's inclined to do evil. It's inclined to, to run away from the light. That's why Jesus says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They will not come to the light for fear that their deeds, their deeds will be exposed. It is, it is unnatural, if you will, for an unregenerate sinner to desire Christ because it's contrary to his very nature. Something else has to happen. You must be born again. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, before you can see the kingdom, before you can enter the kingdom, and all that's through faith, you can see the kingdom with eyes of faith, you enter the kingdom through faith, Jesus says, you must be born again. Before this can happen, this has to happen. And the fact of you coming to Christ and being able to call upon Christ in faith and to cast all your care upon Him, to believe upon the Son of God, wasn't your doing? Do you recognize that? It was the action of our sovereign God who performed this work in you. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1, by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. That's what, that's what we're seeing here. That we're seeing how, how our Lord seeks after. Our Lord found him. And he asked him the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? Here's what's required. Do you believe? How does all that fit together? Well, we understand this when it comes to salvation. That you receive the effectual calling of God. That God opens up your heart. God has caused you to be born again. God has granted you faith. But God doesn't believe for you. This is an action that you do. You repent. You believe. God doesn't do that for you. But it is through exercising the faith that has been granted to us in Christ Jesus that brings justification. That is the instrumental cause. As the apostle says in Romans chapter 5. Seeing how we are justified by faith. Do you believe in the son of man? He answered, who is he Lord? And this, this use of the word Lord, kurios, is just a polite way of saying sir. At least it is right there. This will change in just a moment. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? This man has never seen Jesus. He has only heard Jesus speak to him. Jesus had made the mud, put it to his eyes, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man went and washed. He came back seeing, but Christ was already gone by then. He'd never seen him. He is longing to, to believe in him. God has done this great work in him. Longing to exercise faith, this faith that has been granted to, to the right object, if you will. Who is he that I may believe in him? What a work that God was doing here. And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now, understand some of the things that Jesus is asking him. Do you believe in the son of man? Now, this is going to, to come back to his remembrance about Daniel chapter 7 and what we know to be Daniel chapter 7. 
of the Son of Man, the vision of the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, beginning of verse 13, we read this. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The vision of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 is, is a divine person. It is one who has been granted authority, who has been granted the, <clears throat> a kingdom, dominion. All of this that we read here, a people that would serve him. This is, uh, just as a, a footnote there, this is what, what we are privileged to see there is perhaps what happened after the ascension of our Lord. As our Lord ascended into heaven, remember he prayed in John chapter 17, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then you see in this passage how he ascends to heaven before God the Father, who is the Ancient of Days. He's presented before him and he receives glory. A kingdom. Because of his completed work, all peoples, nations, and men of every language serving him. His dominion, because he is the king of kings, surpasses any other kingdom in existence. It is all over the globe. His, his dominion is everlasting. Never will it be destroyed. This is that understanding when they talk about the Son of Man. It goes back to Daniel and his vision of the Son of Man. So Jesus asked this man, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he that I may? He didn't say, I know who he is. I'm well aware. Who is he? He's ignorant in the sense that he, just, that he doesn't know. Jesus says, you've both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And his next words were, Lord, I believe. And when he says, Lord, this time, he's not saying, sir. He is acknowledging this one who is speaking to him to be the son of man that we're reading of in Daniel. The glorious son of God. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now, this is Jesus affirming his deity, by the way, because no other created being on earth is capable of receiving worship. Anytime, like you find in the book of Revelation, for example, that John is just so caught up with everything that's going on that he falls at the feet of the angel. What does the angel say? Don't worship me. Worship God. This isn't this isn't right to worship me. You worship God. This man Remember, this is publicly, by the way. This is in this is being done publicly because we're going to read here as well that there's there's Pharisees standing there as well who are going to hear what Jesus is saying to this man after that he he worships him. And this word worship is the proskuneo. It is to prostrate yourself before him and has the idea of paying homage, kissing the hand, bowing before one greater than you. And that's what he does. After Jesus acknowledges, I'm the one. 
What does this man do? This is the object of his faith. This is the object of his worship. It is Christ Jesus. And so he bows before him. He ascribes worth to him. He acknowledges that he is greater than him. Brings himself low that he may exalt the one who opened his eyes. Physically and spiritually. And again, this is done publicly. He doesn't care. It doesn't seem like he cares. Who all's watching? Who's, who's present? Something amazing had just happened to him. And he expresses that, that praise and that thanksgiving regardless of who was standing there. You know, that really captures a lot of what it is of the aspects of worship. Worship isn't to, to tell us just how great that we are, that we feel good. Worship is that we, we ascribe worth to the one who is the perfect being, who is the holy God who has entered into relationship with us. And on, on account of that, as we were reflecting upon that, as we're, as we're allowing that to penetrate our hearts and to move and to stir our emotions, to think this is the God of all creation who has, who has given himself to me, then we ascribe worship to him. We ascribe him the praise, him the thanksgiving. It is an amazing thing to consider that the God of all creation has entered into relationship with sinful people. But it tells us too who the object of our faith should be. Not only of our worship, but our faith. It is Christ Jesus. He's the object of it. Anytime we allow other things to come in in order to distract us from Him being the object of our worship, then we're getting into shaky ground. We're getting into to uncharted territory, if you will. And sadly, that is something that is very common. And it could be even, even things that we would consider, well, that's not too big of a thing, but in, in the sense that it is. He is to receive all of our faith, all of our worship. We are wholly dependent upon Him. Nothing else that we can do, it's all dependent upon Him. No works to be done. And so anything that we begin to implement that says, well, you have to believe in Christ, but you have to do plus, plus, plus. Now our faith is not just in him. Now our faith is what we are performing as well. That's why when you get into certain denominations that advocate for baptismal regeneration, meaning that you have to be fully, you have to be baptized in order to be fully saved. Then they're taking away from the, the object of what our faith should be in Christ alone. You are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone in Christ alone. Not in any work that you perform. There are no works that you can perform. There are no good deeds that you could do enough of that God would say, well, since you've done this a number of times, I will now grant you fully eternal life. We come before God with nothing in our hands, nothing of ourselves, no righteousness. We come before God empty-handed, and the only thing that we have is Christ Jesus. That's it. What can we say when we stand before the Lord? 
I have your son. The perfect one who carried out all the demands of your law. The one who died in my stead. Whose justice, your justice, he satisfied. I have nothing else but him. He is the object of our faith fully. Nothing else. Works of righteousness that we do, we do because of our salvation. Not to get salvation, but because of our salvation. When you, when you look in the scripture and you see the things that God has commanded of his people, it's, 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 it's not to gain salvation. You see the things that are pleasing to God. And, and so we implement those things and we do those things because we know that it's pleasing to him. And we should desire to please God because of his great grace that has been given to us. That's the whole, that's the whole aspect of the law. The law was given not for man to keep it because he can't. But it was to show the righteous standard of God that he requires of man. The law can only condemn. The law is good and the law is holy, but it can only condemn. It has no salvific aspects. And as Paul says, it points us to Christ. The things that are contained in the law are good. And we do those things because we want to please God. But he is the sole object of faith. The sole object of our salvation, of our worship, of our praise, of our thanksgiving. Everything is aimed towards Christ. That's why everything that we do should be all to exalt Christ. Every aspect of it. Of the worship service itself. As Alistair Begg says, worship doesn't begin with man and his need. It begins with God and his glory. Why? Because of all, all of our needs are met in him. When we remind ourselves of of the greatness of God and, and the majesty of God and the splendor of God and just how amazing and precious that He is, that our needs are being met in Him. He is the object of our faith. Worship is indeed a natural response to faith as we're seeing there of this man. One theologian said, the man gives to Jesus that reverence that is appropriate to God. He also goes on to say, the man's worship of Jesus replaced his worship in the synagogue. All, and it's, it's so amazing to think of this as we're coming to this conclusion here of John chapter 9. That everything that has been happening in chapter 8 into chapter 9 is, is, is being illustrated here. Jesus had declared at the Feast of Tabernacles that he was the light of the world. And apart from him, men are walking in darkness. And you see that here. That the light of Christ is shown into this man. And he is no longer walking in darkness. He has opened the eyes of this man physically and spiritually. And this man has now been granted faith to believe and to worship. This light. Though it is. It's has shown in the, the heart of this man. It is also a symbol of judgment to the others who reject our Lord Jesus. Jesus says this, and this is why we know that what's happening here is in a public area. Because Jesus says, for judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see 
and that those who see may become blind. And then we hear of the Pharisees. Those Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Now, to say this uh, beginning here, uh, verse 39, where he says, For judgment I came into this world. This isn't in conflict with what he said earlier in John chapter 3, verse 17, when he says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The Son of God did not come into the world in his first coming in order to execute judgment. Finish it all. He came as a sacrifice for those that the Father had given him to accomplish redemption. But he also came to pronounce judgment on those who reject him. For judgment I came into this world, he says. So that those who do not see, those who are ignorant, who do not know the way, who are darkened in their understanding, they're walking in the futility of their mind. But when the light of Christ shines in their hearts, that they may see. And that those who see, those who claim to know, those who claim to see, just as the religious leaders are, may become blind. Now, the Pharisees are anticipating a negative answer when they ask this question. We are not blind too, are we? And the answer is yes, you are blind. This man who was actually blind has been granted sight and has been granted spiritual sight. But you are blind. Now, think of this. These are religious leaders of Israel. These are the Pharisees. These are the conservatives uh, within the Sanhedrin. These are the ones teaching the law who are the experts of the law. Experts in the scripture. And they know that this is a genuine miracle of our Lord Jesus. They cannot deny what has happened. And we know that they actually affirmed what has happened. Because when the man, very sarcastically, had said that you do not want to become one of his disciples too, do you? And they reviled the man. Now, when they say that... You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us after this back and forth? What were they affirming? They were affirming the truth of this man being born, born blind because they, in their views, had, had declared, and there were certain rabbis that had declared that you could sin in your mother's womb. And if you did that, as we've talked about the past couple Sundays, you could be born with some type of a defect. And so they attributed this man's blindness to some kind of a sin that he committed in his mother's womb. And so when they say to him, you were born entirely in sins, implying we weren't. And are you teaching us? So they put him out. They indirectly affirmed the fact that he was born blind. They cannot deny this. But still, they will not believe. They are willfully ignorant. Purposefully ignorant. They see the very things that Jesus has done. They see the miracles that he has done. I mean, when they hear of Lazarus, what are they going to do? When they hear that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, they wanted to kill Jesus, but they wanted to kill Lazarus again too. 
because of the darkness of their hearts and the stubbornness of their hearts, they would not believe even though they knew these things to be true. And they are the ones who were supposed to be leading others. But as Jesus declares of them, they are blind guides leading the blind. They are blind men. But they claim to see. They claim to know. So Jesus tells them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. If you were spiritually ignorant... And willing to be taught. Willing to learn. Now this is speaking in re about rejecting him. But since you say we see, your sin remains. This is the great sin that they were committing. Willfully rejecting him even though they seen the things that he's doing. And as this man had affirmed, as Nicodemus had affirmed, no one can do the things that you can do unless God be with him. And they would not believe, though they knew these things. They are like those who are described in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. They were self-reliant. They were self-satisfied. And though they knew the genuineness of the miracles, still they rejected Christ. And because of that, their sin remained. There was no atonement for their sin. There was no covering for their sin. They would die in their sins as Jesus declared about them. Because they did not believe in the Son of Man. They did not worship the Son of Man. They did not give thanks to the Son of Man. Even though all these miracles are happening, which were characteristic of the Messianic age that, <clears throat> that the, the prophets had, had told of. They were willfully ignorant and purposefully tried to discredit what they knew to be true. That was one of the great sins that they committed was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now we think sometimes blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting Christ and not believing. Well, that's not it. Because in our natural state, we don't believe and we reject Christ. But he converts our hearts so that we may believe. So that can't be right. But what was happening? You had our Lord Jesus who was casting out demons, who was doing all these mighty miracles. And what did they do? They saw everything that he did and they said, he's doing this by the power of Satan. So they attributed to Satan the works of the Holy Spirit. And when they did this, Jesus says, blasphemy of the Son is forgiven, but blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not forgiven. You sealed your fate right there. <clears throat> Their condemnation was sure. And their sin remained. They would stand before the God whom they claimed to have known. And they will be rendered righteous judgment. So the light is not only a grace of God, a gift of God. When the light of Christ shines in your hearts through the Holy Spirit of God is granted to you. But it's also a sign of judgment. Because both the Pharisees and the blind man each stood in the light and it unmasked both of their spiritual dispositions. For those that are privileged to receive it, they are granted the spiritual eyes to see the gracious nature of our God. They're granted to understand at least to as much as we can, 
the great love of our God. These things that are done here have been granted to you. You know the love of God because of what God did in sending His only Son to die in your place. To willingly give Himself a ransom to willingly allow himself to be the object of his father's intense wrath against sin that he may satisfy his justice on your behalf. What love is greater than that? What act of love could ever be known to man but that? And as we, we've said a moment ago, when it comes to worship, Worship all begins with God and His glory. Worship is all ascribing worth to the Lord and all of that. But there is that element as well of understanding how precious that you are in the sight of God. That He would seek after you. That He would change your heart. That He would bring you into Himself. Make you the apple of His eye. Make you His own possession. Set you apart as holy. Justify you in his sight that you can be an heir and a joint heir with Christ. So many things that God has, has shown to you to demonstrate just how precious that you are in his sight. And so what do we do then? We, we see those things and we, we come to know those things. And we want to grow in those things. And so your walk with the Lord is no longer in darkness and the futility of your mind. Your walk is now in the light of Christ, pursuing him. Pursuing righteousness, pursuing knowledge of Him, learning more, growing. That is at least the, the, the result of, of, of what these things should produce in us. What it should cultivate in us. That's why, again, and I love this, and you need to go back and you need, you need to read it. When you read the Puritan Thomas Watson in his book, Heaven Taken by Storm, that's the very thing that he's talking about in Matthew chapter 11. When the, when the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force... The kingdom of heaven doesn't suffer violence from the unregenerate. But it is talking about that those who are, who are entering into the kingdom, entering into the kingdom with all their might and with all their strength, again, seeking to lay hold of that which laid hold of us. So your walk with Christ should be, should be with all your might and with all your strength and with all your heart, demonstrating that kind of a love for your God. Not to be complacent. Not to be self-reliant on something that you think that you've done. Not to be so, so just ah, when it comes to knowledge of God. When it comes to learning of God. To be so indifferent to those things. You have the greatest privilege of any other people on the face of the earth to know God. Do you recognize that? This isn't for everybody. This, not everybody gets this privilege and this grace of God bestowed to them. It has been granted to you. And he has granted us his word that we may pursue righteousness, that we may pursue him, that we may know him even more so. To show complacency and, and, and self-reliance and self-satisfaction and all of those things and to be willfully ignorant because you have people that say, well, I don't want to learn anymore. I'm satisfied where I am with my knowledge and that should never be the case with a child of God. Those are characteristics of the enemies of God. Well, I learned all that I'm going to learn. I don't want to learn anymore. 
how often we diminish the greatest gift that we've ever been given. There is no greater gift, no greater treasure than Christ Jesus, your Lord. There is nothing else in this world that is more valuable than Him. And yes, there are times in your pursuit of righteousness, in your pursuit of God, that you will encounter those as this healed man did. You'll encounter the self-righteous. You'll encounter those who are wise in their own estimation, who are the wise of the world. And perhaps you'll be slandered. Perhaps they may physically harm you. We don't know. We don't know what things may come. But that is a small price to pay to know the true and the living God. That's why the Apostle Paul reiterates that over and over. This is momentary light affliction. But it's producing in you a greater weight of glory yet to be revealed. The present sufferings of this world are not even to be compared with what the Lord has for His own. So there are going to be times in which, yeah, you'll, you'll have to have some difficult ordeals. But it's all worth it. Because you're standing on the side of your sovereign God who sought you, who bought you, made you His own, claims you as His own, and grants to you the Spirit of God who gives you everything that you need in order to endure this life. Consider how precious that you are. Consider how loved that you truly are. Sometimes we don't feel like we're loved by this one or by that one. Sometimes this may happen. But you have the greatest, the greatest love toward you right now in Christ Jesus. There is no greater. People of the world may not love you, but the God who created the world does. What an encouragement that, that should be to us. How much our hearts should be stirred to know that our salvation wasn't our own doing, but He. It's all because of Him. As one, one man said, you didn't have anything to do with your first birth, did you? You didn't have anything to do with your second either. It was all Christ Jesus. It was the Spirit of God. So dear friends, when it comes to every aspect of your life, your public acknowledgement, your public confession of Christ, never be, never be ashamed of Him who has called you into His marvelous light. What things that you endure in this life, you bear it and you endure it as a good soldier in Christ knowing that He's providing everything you need. Let your pursuit of Him be with all your might and with all your strength. Learn, read, study, grow. Because you have the greatest privilege of knowing Him. And when those times come that you give an answer, a reason of the hope is, that is within you, who knows how the Lord may use you in those times in order to further His kingdom, further His gospel further the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Don't 
don't be satisfied with where you're at. Always desire to know more. Let's pursue Him with all of our heart, with all of our mind. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how we thank You so much for the gift of salvation for our Lord Jesus Christ, greatest treasure, our greatest hope, our only hope. Thank You, Father, that Your Word tells us that he who believes in Him will never be disappointed. Father, help us in our walk with you. Help us each day in our pursuit of you. And Father, I pray for all of us here that you would grant us the wisdom and the knowledge that comes from knowing you, that comes from the scripture, that we may behold our Lord Jesus even more so with eyes of faith. You say you give wisdom liberally. The Holy Father, we pray indeed that you would grant us wisdom. Grant us knowledge. Grant us the resolve in order to endure whatever comes in this life, keeping our eyes fixed upon Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Have your way with us. Use us to further your kingdom. Use us, Lord, as an instrument to bring others into the kingdom. May you be glorified in us through our speech, through our actions. Oh, Father. Give us more desire of you. We love you imperfectly, but we strive to love you. Looking forward to the day in which we will love you perfectly. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.